Good morning and thanks for joining us. Today we're starting a new series. We're calling it Amazing Grace. And for the next month, we're going to be talking about the topic of worship. What is worship? Why do we worship? And how can we do it well? So the coronavirus has obviously changed the way that the world interacts. And this has had a, a pretty big impact on churches because we no longer can gather together in person, not in the same way, and we can't worship in the way that we were used to. Uh, singing has become very complicated. As many of you uh, might remember, back in March of this year, a choir in Washington State got together. They were rehearsing, and out of a 60-member choir, one person uh, infected about 52 of them. So singing has become complicated. Gathering has become complicated. So what does this mean for worship? How do we worship God well in this time? What we hope to do through this series is take a look at the fundamentals, the basics, and the reasons behind worship. And then together, in the weeks to come, I'm going to invite us as a church to put on our thinking caps, to begin brainstorming and using our creativity to think about how worship can move forward. How can we engage in it more faithfully and engage in worship that is meaningful? So today, to do that, I'm going to talk about three things, three stories uh, that help us understand and see what worship is, why we worship, and where worship comes from. Where does it originate? So let's begin with the first story. The first story comes from my own personal life. So I grew up going to church with my parents when I was young. But it was a really unusual situation because my parents were divorced, and so most of my weekends spent with either mom or dad framed those church experiences in terms of loyalty to one parent or the other. I really wasn't thinking too much about God. But in high school, a few of my friends invited me to their youth group uh, to attend church on a Friday night. And it was there I began to think, what is worship really all about? Now, I wasn't a follower of Jesus. And when I got to the first meeting, I was really struck by how things were set up. Some people were in the front of the room. They put on some acoustic guitars and began playing this music. Somebody was operating a overhead projector machine and projecting the words. These transparencies were shining words along the wall. And then the group began to sing these songs. And I had a really difficult time getting into it. I didn't really understand it at that point. It felt very weird and very foreign. Uh, especially to see so many Asian Americans singing country music and folk music. Uh, and one of the strangest songs of all was about Noah and the ark and these animals. It was called Arky Arky. And I noticed how my friends were singing and using hand motions to accompany this song. And they were really getting into it. I just really couldn't get into it myself. Now, it wasn't that I didn't like music. I loved music. I spent almost all my allowance on records and tapes, but my high school soundtrack consisted of, you know, U2, uh, New Order, uh, Depeche Mode, bands that really resonated with me. And all of a sudden, I was thrust into this new situation of people worshiping God with songs like Arky Arky. Some of you are now thinking to yourself about those old camp experiences, about VBS, how you've grown up loving songs like that. 
And others of you have no idea, kind of like me at that point in time, uh, what that song was all about. But it was very strange to say the least. After the songs were over, we transitioned into a time of prayer. And this was also an unusual thing for me. People would raise their hands and they would share very personal prayer requests. And they would talk about uh, personal things that were going in, on in their lives or in their families. And then the pastors or the counselors would pray for these prayer requests. And I, I did kind of admire people for sharing so vulnerably. And I did admire people for speaking up and praying to God like that. But it was definitely not something that I wanted to do myself. So this was my first real experience of a youth group that really valued worship. And it was very strange to me. But the strangest thing of all really was the fact that I actually came back. I attended over and over again. Now there were several reasons why. One of them being my best friend was interested in a girl at church and wanted me to come along. So not everything was quite spiritual in that sense. But really, there were some intriguing things about the meeting. Number one was the fact that everybody there welcomed me and they wanted to know me in a very genuine and a real sense. And that hospitality meant the world to me, especially to a, to a high school who had trouble, a high school who had trouble fitting in in different places. But the other thing that really intrigued me was the story of Jesus. We listened to the Bible. We listen to gospel stories. We listen to parables. And these things really intrigued me. And over the course of six months of attending a youth group and going to Bible studies, I fell in love with God. I became a Christian and I put my faith in Jesus Christ. And then all of a sudden, worship began to make sense to me. You see, when I first entered into the youth group, I was looking at all the particulars, the things that, that made up the experience, like the transparencies, like Arky Arky and these acoustic guitars, and I didn't really get it. But after six months, I fell in love with God, and then worship made all the sense in the world, because now I was connecting with the living God. I was singing praises to one who saved me, who redeemed me, who was renewing me, who loved me deeply and dearly, and it came so naturally to, to want to sing and to praise God. It made all the sense in the world. Here at Access, whenever we begin our worship gatherings, I often like to say that we are connecting with the living God who is connected with us through His Son, Jesus. And I phrase things in those ways because that's kind of the way that I came to know God, and that's how I imagine that relationship to be in our worship gatherings. The word worship comes from an old English word that means recognizing worth in something or in someone. When we sing the praises of someone or something, we are, in a sense, worshiping. And this is actually a very natural thing. We all do this. We do this with sports. We do this with teams that we like. We do this with food that we enjoy. Uh, we do this with experiences that we have. Uh, we sing the praises of things because they mean so much to us. One of my favorite restaurants 
uh, is a Japanese restaurant that's just a few miles from where I live it's called Izakaiwa. And a few months ago when it reopened, our, our family, uh, we were the first ones to, to go back there again. And I was so happy to be in that space enjoying some food that I really liked. And in a sense, when we put our love and attention on something, that's a form of worship. Now, the worship of God is different. It's different than worshiping like a consumer good, uh, something that we purchase or that we buy or that we're trying to sell. The worship of God is much more deep and significant because what we do in that relationship is we connect with the living God. We connect with our Creator, the one who knows us, who fashioned our souls, who longs to save and redeem us. And it has a redemptive kind of work that takes shape in our souls. When we worship God, we are realigning our ourselves with what is true and what is right. St. Augustine back in the 400s phrased it like this way. He says that our hearts are made for God and they're restless without God. And the corollary to this is that when we worship other things that are not God, we are filled with anxiety and fear because that's not where our hearts belong. They don't belong worshiping the things of this world. There's an appropriate level of worship or praise for things of this world. But when it comes to God, he deserves first place. And that's what worship is about. About a hundred years ago, there was a hymn written that phrased it this way. O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness you see? There's light for a look at the Savior and life more abundant and free. Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You know, these words are so important for us to remember right now in our troubled times. Uh, turning our eyes upon Jesus, this is really uh, what worship is and what we do in worship we're turning our eyes upon God and gazing on his worthiness on his worthwhileness on his incredible worth in the new testament there's a letter written to the to the hebrew people and the hebrew people at the time were going through a lot of persecution for their faith in Jesus some of them were losing their homes. Some of them were losing their jobs. Some of them uh, were going to jail and some of them risked their lives. Some of them died for the faith. And in light of all these things, some of them were thinking, well, it's, it's not worth it to get together to worship, is it? Because things are looking so bad right now. But the author to the letter to the Hebrews phrased things this way. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. It was important for the people in the first century to be able to think through worship and how important it was in the formation of their souls. And when life got tough, 
when, got, when life got really hard and when the persecution and the pain and the suffering hit, the author of the Hebrew letter told these people who were undergoing such difficult times to keep meeting together. So what is worship? It is about connecting with the living God. And when we do this, we are transformed, we are changed, we are recognizing the worthiness of our God. For our second story today, we head on over to the book of Matthew. In Matthew's gospel, we hear about a woman who came to Jesus. While Jesus was in Bethany, in the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume, which she poured on his head as he was reclining at the table. When the disciples saw this, they were indignant. Why this waste? they asked. This perfume could have been sold at a high price and the money given to the poor. Aware of this, Jesus said to them, Why are you bothering this woman? She has done a beautiful thing to me. The poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. In the gospel stories, there's more than one anointing that goes on. There's one that happens in Galilee a little earlier in Jesus' life. And this happens when a woman weeps at Jesus' feet and cleans it with her hair. That story revolves around forgiveness and love. This one is a little bit different, and the context makes all the difference in what this story means. So it's important to understand that this story happens right as Jesus is heading into Holy Week. He's headed to Jerusalem and he's headed to the cross. Now there's a gap in understanding at this point in time between what Jesus has been teaching his disciples and what the disciples expect will happen when he actually enters Jerusalem. The disciples think that he's coming to overthrow the Roman rule. He's coming to establish his kingdom as he's been talking about. So at the time, the Israelites were ruled by the Romans. They lived under the captivity of this iron-fisted governance from the Roman Empire. And they wanted freedom from that. They were longing to be free from Roman rule. And in some sense, the disciples weren't wrong. Jesus was going to establish his kingdom. But Jesus had been teaching that his kingdom was not of this world. It was not of the earth. And he was going to do something that humans couldn't do on their own. He was going to deal with the ultimate problems of sin and death. And he needed to do this by going to the cross to die. Now when he taught this, the disciples reacted in different ways. Sometimes they were quiet because they didn't understand. And there was even a point when the Apostle Peter opposed Jesus and said, this is not going to happen. I mean, he was thinking that Jesus was too depressing and maybe Jesus was uh, thinking a little bit off. And Jesus came back at Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. It was a really harsh rebuke at Peter because he wasn't getting it at that moment. You see, God has sent Jesus to take care of these ultimate problems. 
And so this is the context for which we read this story of anointing. When this woman comes to anoint Jesus with a very expensive perfume, everyone's kind of shocked because it's, it's so costly. The Gospel of John gives us a little bit more detail about what happens here. This perfume is worth about a year's wages. So this is a lot of money. And the disciples aren't wrong in the sense that this money could have been used to feed a lot of people. It could have helped a lot of people who were living in poverty, who were maybe begging in the streets. Uh, Jesus often stopped by people who were um, on the streets in need of healing, in need of a touch, and he treated them very well. He loved them. So the disciples were headed in somewhat the right direction when they said, this is a very Jesus thing to do, to sell this perfume and, and help the poor. But Jesus stops them in that moment and says, no, what she did is actually the right thing in this moment. Because they have yet to understand the gravity of what will now happen. Jesus is going to the cross to free human beings from living under the captivity of sin and death. And this is the heart of our faith. So, this is why we worship. See, worship centers us on the gospel, on the heart of our faith, on the very essence of why we come and how we come to God. Things like feeding the poor, opposing uh, oppression or racism, doing righteous deeds for God is very important. It's part of how we live with God. But it's important to, to understand this. We are not saved and redeemed because we do good works for God. We are saved and redeemed because Jesus went to the cross. And this launches us into a new life of working with God. Worship reminds us of our center, which is the gospel. This can be seen most explicitly in one of the central things that we do in our worship gatherings, which is the meal that Jesus gave us, the Lord's Supper or Communion. For centuries, Christians have centered on this as the main vehicle for worship. This is the meat of worship. It's why we gather together. And in it, we recognize that Jesus gave us his body and his blood to establish a new covenant so that we come to God not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of his working for us, and that we live a new life because of what he has done on our behalf. And now we reach our third story for today, which is the story of John Newton. Now, John Newton was born in London in 1724. He was raised by his mom who taught him how to read scripture and taught him some basic theology about who God was. But before he turned seven, uh, his mom passed away of tuberculosis. And for the rest of his childhood, he was raised by his father, who was the sea captain. So he spent his days learning about the ocean. His father eventually retired, and so John Newton struck out on his own and tried to make his own fortune in his own way in life. But his young adult years can be best described as a slow descent into darkness. He began to live a life that was very unchecked and unbalanced and was full of excess. 
He would try and turn back to God at different points and feel guilty about it, but he would go quickly back in the other direction. One day, he encountered the British Navy, and this really changed things for the worse. They conscripted him so he was stripped of his freedom, and he had to work for the military. He tried to escape, but he was caught, he was arrested, and he was whipped. Some friends who had some influence was able, were able to get him out of that situation and onto a different ship, but that only made things worse because that, sli- that ship was a slave trader. And working in the slave trade, John's life began to descend more and more into darkness. He didn't get along with the crew. In fact, things became very difficult to the point where the slaves felt sorry for Newton and even offered him food and water because the conflict got so bad. Sometimes when people go through suffering and pain, they become more soft, they become more humble, and they're able to be more receptive to things in life and have a a new profound humility. But sometimes we observe that when people go through suffering and hardship, they actually become harder. Their hearts become hardened and they lose that ability to listen to others. And that was the case with John Newton. Instead of softening, he became harder. He made it his own ambition to get his own slave trading ship. And that's exactly what he did. He eventually became the captain of his own slave trading ship. And he spent his years in utter darkness doing one of the worst things in human history. Not all was lost though. A small ray of light happened into John's life in the form of a devotional guide called The Imitation of Christ. He discovered this book somehow and he began to read about a life with God. And this intrigued him for some reason. One day a new moment of testing came on as his ship encountered a violent storm. The storm got so bad that it washed one of his crew members overboard and he died. John Newton really thought it was going to be the end of his life as well. He tied himself with a rope, tied himself to the ship, and began to bail water out as fast as he could. But even using all of his effort in that moment, he really thought the worst was at hand. He thought he was going to die. And in that moment of of pain and of fear and of, of this utter chaos, he began to reflect on what his life had meant. And he came to the conclusion that his life was really worthless. There was no moment that he could point back to that he could be proud of or that he could feel like meant something significant. And he cried out to God in a short prayer, Lord, have mercy. As he prayed that prayer, he later on would go on to reflect and give in his testimonies that that was the hour that he first believed. The storm didn't abate at that point. In fact, it persisted a little longer. He and his crew fought hard to survive, but eventually they did survive. And that prayer of confession before God, that cry of help, actually meant something. That was his conversion moment. Eventually, John Newton extracted himself from the slave trading uh, ways, and he went on to London to study the Bible. And he had a real change of heart. 
a deep change of heart. He eventually wrote a book. This came decades after the, that former life, but he wrote a book about the horrors of the slave trade. He published it. He confessed his own dealings with it, and he gave a member uh, gave a copy to every member of the British Parliament, in the hopes that they would also abolish slavery. Newton became a firm advocate for the abolition of slavery. He became friends with another well-known Christian at the time named William Wilberforce. And it's said that Wilberforce one day came to John Newton for advice because he was involved in politics. And Wilberforce asked him for advice about whether he should enter the pastoral ministry or stay involved in politics. And John Newton's advice to his friend was to stay and make a difference. And we are so glad that he did because Wilberforce eventually went on to become a leader of the abolition movement in the UK. Newton spent his post-slavery years pastoring a church. And along with the worship leader of that church, the two of them came up with new songs to worship God every single week. And they would share it with their congregation Apparently, the man had a lot to sing about. I mean, God not only saved him from a storm, but he saved him from a total shipwreck of a life, a life headed for disaster. And through that salvation, he was able to help save other lives as well. John Newton's story is the inspiration for our series, and we'll revisit it in the days to come to think about where we can begin to worship God at a deeper level. But this is uh, important for us to understand because it helps us to know where worship comes from. You see, sometimes people looking from the outside of the church don't understand worship and, and they wonder, why, why, does, why does God demand worship from his people? Uh, isn't that a bit self-centered? Is God so insecure that he needs the praises of his people to feel good? And, and this is really a distorted look at what worship is. It's taking a look at worship through the filtered lens of power and of mistrust, of really suspicion. But you see, worship has always been framed by love. The reason I worship God is because I love God, because God first loved me. Uh, the Apostle John frames it this way in Scripture. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. And then 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. In a moment, I'm going to offer a prayer and Maybe there's some of you who are listening today and you've never put your trust in Jesus. You've Maybe you've heard about him or maybe this is your first time hearing of the gospel, that Jesus Christ, the Savior of God, offers this invitation for a life with God by taking care of our sin and our death. But before we get to that prayer, I want us to listen to the words of John Newton as he tells the story of his own life through the lyrics of this worship song, a worship song that is perhaps now the most famous worship song that has ever come across um, our minds. Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, 
how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. T'was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. And how precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. The Lord has promised good to me, his word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And when we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun, we've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Amen. You know, as we wrap up today, like I said, I want to offer this may be your first time putting your trust in Jesus. And if you'd like to do so, I encourage you just to follow me in this prayer. Heavenly Father, I confess that I need you and that I want your salvation. I confess that I cannot save myself by my own deeds, but I need the work of Christ who went to the cross on my behalf to take care of sin and death. And I believe now and trust in you for this new life that I receive in Jesus. I walk now in your light. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Hey, if you prayed that with me and you're wanting to start this relationship with God, I encourage you to email staff at accesslive.org. We'd love to walk with you in this new journey and give you some guidance in your first steps with Together now, church, let's say our sending prayer and let's go out in faith and remember the God who loves us. Loving God through all our years, let the church be a community where we learn about love and practice it, where we envision peace and work to build it, where we meet partners in faith who wish to abandon everything that cheapens our discipleship, where we discover gifts and May your spirit guide us toward joy and generosity in Jesus' name, in the way of Jesus.